Welcome to JAG Talk, a podcast series featuring Navy JAG community experts. Listen to in-depth discussions about different legal fields and hear insights and lessons learned from practitioners across our enterprise. Chapter 39, Obstacles and Opportunities, the Latinx Judge Advocate Experience. Welcome to our podcast, Obstacles and Opportunities, the Latinx Judge Advocate Experience. I'm Patty Babb, the JAG Community's Public Affairs Officer. I'm joined today by members of the Navy Judge Advocate Hispanic Association, Lieutenant Eduardo Reyes-Chavez, Lieutenant Mally Rodriguez, Lieutenant Frankie Bridges, Lieutenant Uvia Rodriguez, Lieutenant J.G. Carolina Gray, and Lieutenant Kevin Morris. Thank you so much for taking part in this podcast, and let's get started. Frankie, can you tell me about your experiences in law school as a Latinx student? Uh, how did your background and culture influence your decision to pursue a legal career? Uh, thanks for that question, Patty. So, at least uh, for me in law school, I went to law school in Cleveland, and Cleveland itself is a pretty diverse city, um, good amount of minorities. Uh, but interestingly enough, I was the only Hispanic female in my law school class. So even though like I would walk around the streets of Cleveland and see a lot of people that look like me, going into law school, I was the only person that looked like me. Um, so, I mean, I had a great experience as much as you can in law school. Um, I, you know, enjoyed almost all of my peers, so I didn't feel any different. But I would say when we would discuss, like, personal experiences or growing up, you know, I really could see the difference between, you know, kind of how I grew up um, in a very, like, Latin American-centered home, being Spanish as my first language. Um, I mean, some of my family members didn't speak English. And just my maybe my socioeconomic status, like how I grew up and got to where I got to, um, I could really see a difference amongst the majority of the other students. A lot of them came from like legal backgrounds, like parents were attorneys. I didn't have any of that. I was like first generation, almost everything, and definitely first generation to go into law school. So it definitely opened my eyes in the sense that, you know, it's so great to see more people that look like you where you want to go, and especially when it comes to, like, graduate professional levels, Um, and that kind of motivated me to reach back to our kind of local undergrad, because I think when you see someone who looks like you, maybe where you want to be, it helps you feel like you can get there, Um, and I also did some mentorship in Cleveland with, like, high school students uh, who were kind of in poorer neighborhoods or not the best neighborhoods. So I thought it was that was my other way of giving back and saying like, hey, I might be the only one where I am, but let's help increase those numbers so there's more people who look like us uh, where we are. So that kind of was my experience in law school. My background and uh, cultural influences that helped me decide to become an attorney. Uh, so again, I'm first generation, definitely had immigration issues within my family. Almost all of like my aunts, uncles, grandparents are all, you know, naturalized citizens. So kind of seeing that struggle very much on a first hand basis, having personal experiences with like within my family of deportation. And then, you know, feeling like I wanted to be there kind of for the underdog. I'm probably more um, kind of, you know, really connected with that uh, is probably one of the reasons that I wanted to pursue a legal career and seeing family members trying to talk to attorneys and deal with attorneys 
and the importance that they can play in these like very critical life decisions, whether it was like criminal or immigration or even like family law stuff, definitely help influence why I wanted to become an attorney. That's great. Thank you so much. Nellie, who are your role models and why? Who had a career either inside or outside the military that you'd like to emulate? Patty, you know, growing up, uh, being the daughter of immigrants, I have had several role models in my life. Um, There are several people who I have looked up to who have guided and mentored me along the way to get to where I am today. Um, However, for today's podcast, given current events, um, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't focus a little bit of time on uh, the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg and everything that she did for for women um, as a female attorney and justice on the Supreme Court. Um, Her fight for equality and especially for women in the military, I think is remarkable. And, you know, I don't have the right words and I don't think I I will ever have the right words to capture, um, you know, how incredible she was to us and just the deep loss that we're all feeling, um, you know, re- regardless of your political ideology, I think there's a lot to look up to Justice Ginsburg um, and everything that she did. Um, and, you know, along that same token as well, um, you know, Justice Sonia Sotomayor being the first Hispanic um, and Latina on the Supreme Court, um, I think is also remarkable. But certainly, you know, there's so many JAGs um, and so many attorneys that that um, I've had the pleasure of, of working with and, and continue to that, that I look up to. But, um, you know, I think being a JAG, especially um, as a Latino, Latina, um, it takes a village to, um, you know, takes a village every day to continue moving forward and, and do what we do, do the type of work that we do. Carolina, since the death of George Floyd, conversations about diversity and inclusion have been uh, more prevalent across the Navy. How have you been impacted by racism, both subtle and overt, uh, in the military? Yeah, Patty, this um, this is this is tough. The murder of George Floyd is is tragic and has definitely made me and um, my command take a closer look at racism in the Navy and the military generally, um, and, and in the JAG Corps. I am a brand new to the JAG Corps. And although I was a public defender for a few years prior to my commissioning, um, I have noticed and there has been a notable impact of racism that I've seen in my short time in the Navy. Um, and I think that's most notably been the lack of like black and black and brown leadership, uh, top leadership within the Navy. And Therefore, a lack of black and brown perspective in the Navy JAG Corps, especially at the top. Um, And that just shows me that the JAG Corps has a lot of room to grow and a lot of work to do when it comes to recruiting talented black and brown judge advocates or, you know, focusing and focusing on retaining the ones already serving. Um, So I think that's been the, the most notable thing that I've seen. Um, I worked as a, like I said, as a public defender and was able to understand like this is the, <laughs> this is the impact of mass incarceration of minorities in America and how do we combat that? And I loved my work doing that. Um, but 
realized how wonderful, you know, serving the JAG Corps could be. But that's probably been the biggest, the biggest and most uh, notable thing that I've recognized and seen in, in racism, racism, particularly in the in the military and JAG Corps. Absolutely. I think a lot of folks would agree with you. Um, thank you for sharing that. I want to um, switch to Frankie again. Frankie, how can the Navy and the JAG community become more inclusive organizations? Carolina talked a little bit about um, recruiting and retention, which I imagine you'll probably mention too. Um, what else do you think we can do to be more inclusive? Um, I think a comment Carolina made was really good about the perspective and experiences of minorities and just having more of a conversation about that. Um, I mean, obviously, definitely recruiting will make a big impact on that. But even within, like, our own workspaces or reaching outside of, you know, I'm an independent SJ, maybe reaching outside to talk to LN, whether it's enlisted or officer, just talking to each other more about our experience and experiences and opinions, obviously within the confines of what's allowed, I think that will help kind of open up our minds. And, you know, I think discussing unconscious bias, I think obviously unconscious bias is within the word, but making us more aware of it and, you know, making it a point to kind of combat it will, I think, help us to be more inclusive as an organization. Absolutely. Um, Kevin, uh, JAG and DJAG released some messages uh, about these issues. What did you take away from their messages about diversity? Um, And what about CNO's um, messages on that topic? Have they impacted you in any way? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in whole, if I had to sum up those messages, it was um, we as your senior leaders are listening. And specifically, I think um, we as um, older white men are listening to what you all have to say, like what the community has to say. We're listening not only to the civilians, but we're also listening to military personnel, um, which I thought was important because I don't know if that statement would have, there's definitely periods in America's, in America's history where those statements would not have been made. We're like, we hear you and we are listening more to, we want to know what your experiences are. And so I guess one of my hesitations in joining the military was, was like, well, are there going to be people who think like me? And so hearing that for me was affirming of that idea that like, yes, we have work to do, but we are like, we are open to hearing. And I, and I kind of wish that people, um, outside of the Navy, I hope they hear that message as well, that it's like, hey, your, your military leaders aren't, aren't, um, aren't just very narrow-minded people. They are indeed actually like very, very open-minded. Uh, and they want, they want progress to happen. They want uh, black people and other people of color to, um, to have a voice and to make sure that voice is heard. Absolutely. Um, Yuvia, let's turn to you a little bit. Um, what's your perspective on racial disparities, specifically in military justice? Um, how can the JAG community begin to address this issue? It's important that we understand um, that we preach, and I do believe the fact that we in the military um, believe in the mission of inclusion, um, but that doesn't in and of itself prevent racial disparities in the military justice system um, because the fact is that we still have leaders who are either explicitly biased um, or racist. Um, but we also have to recognize that 
we have uh, leaders who may not be that overtly biased or racist, but that are also implicitly biased. Um, and that we, everybody, whether we're people of color or not, have unconscious biases that drive the decisions that we make every day. Um, but what's missing in the Jack Four and in the Navy in and of itself is statistics. So I recently learned that uh, up until August of this year, we were not collecting data and statistics on the race and ethnicity of accused people uh, within the court-martial system. So that's a huge issue, right? We can't begin to to say what solutions we have if we don't have the data to understand where we are. Um, and I firmly believe that the Jack Corps should be the one to lead the way in that um, in, in, in a couple, in a few different ways. Um, first, by doing what we started doing and tracking the ethnicity um, of the accused and court marshals uh, with a database that has rank, rate, ethnicity, the charge and the results of trial, right? And this isn't something that we're going to get data back right away, but then we can look back in a year or two and see how those punishments are being awarded at court-martial and what the difference is between the people of color and non-people of color that are being awarded punishments for similar crimes. Um, we also need to track the same data points for NJPs and assets. Um, and that's going to lead us to understand what the convening authority is doing. Um, and I don't mean that in a way to expose racist convening authorities, but it has a lot to do with implicit bias. How is the convening authority making decisions on the punishments at NJP for similar crimes or who goes to an asset board for things that are not mandatory processing? Um, and all of those things matter. We can't begin to make solutions and create a plan forward if we don't understand what's happening. Um, we also need to track the same thing within our military law enforcement system, right? Specifically, use of force um, as, it, as it relates to race um, in the MAs, in our police, civilian police departments, on onboard military installations, and NCIS. Um, and then we need to collect all that data and, and create an across-the-board, unconscious bias training um, that deals with all of this at different levels. We have training courses at NJS for uh, new, uh, newly appointed CEOs and XOs. So we need to have those unconscious bias trainings with those new convening authorities. We need to have those unconscious bias trainings with military judges, with prosecutors, with defense attorneys. And we definitely need to have those unconscious bias trainings with our law enforcement within the military. Um, I, as a former uh, MA and DOD police officer, uh, have seen it firsthand. And I can't tell you that there was ever a training that said, you know, we look for this specific type of person and this is who we target. And it's never been explicit, but it's always been there. And those stereotypes that we carry within and ourselves, those unconscious biases dictate who we look at, who we investigate and how we address and, and treat that specific person. Um, and we cannot begin to move forward until we address that, but we can't address it until we have the data points that we need uh, to create comprehensive solutions. I think, I think Yuvia made incredible, incredible points about unconscious bias. And yeah. um, I think ultimately the training is, is necessary. Not only can it be helpful and effective tool, but it's necessary. Um, even having experienced unconscious bias, even having my own unconscious biases, um, I think 
an unconscious bias training that was done in my command recently helped me better understand and I think helped everyone in my command better understand um, everything that Yuvia just explained so eloquently, especially um, in the areas of like intersectionality as well, when you not only have somebody who is, um, you know, Latino or, or, or black or anything like that, but rather, you know, a sexual orientation question, race, ethnicity, nationality, religious beliefs, age, disability, like a variety of other things that would um, lead to the intersectionality of, you know, deeper unconscious biases as well. To follow up on Uvia's point, um, I think that it's uh, incredibly important going forward that um, to help fix some of these racial disparities that you start that we do include people, um, people of color and people of um, diverse like thought, and that like not just uh, color, but uh, if uh, you've had you've had a life of being surrounded by people who aren't like you, so that when you are looking at someone either advising a command like a convening authority or you are the trial counsel um, in a case, you are not as dismissive maybe of that person and maybe a little more understanding that um, that person may have had some experiences in life that aren't like yours that led them to be where they're at. One of the things about military justice and and how we can move forward, right? Um, I talked about all of these things that we need to do to really learn where we are. but on the flip side of that, we need to be careful that we don't overcorrect. And and what I mean by that is creating a system where everybody who commits X offense gets Y uh, punishment because we have to recognize that every case is fact-specific um, and every accused, every victim, every witness um, is specific to that case. Um, so uh, I would like to, I guess, preemptively warn of whatever it is that we do that I'm happy that we need to do, um, that we don't create a system where everybody's punished the same across the way without looking at the specific facts of their case. Um, and like Kevin said, the specific facts of their upbringing and their life and the reasons of why they are where they are um, or, you know, are accused of whatever crime that they're accused of committing. Um, so it's a very complex situation, but I ultimately still believe that it, it starts with looking at our data. So um, I think unconscious bias training is super important. I just I don't want it to be um, something that's just sticker or rubber stamped where, hey, we have an unconscious bias training. That's enough. I think um, part of this is also that like because sometimes people who right so like all of us, I think here are probably like very much in favor of unconscious bias or at least um, to the people that have spoken. Right. And so they're open to that idea. And so it feeds into them when they get that training, they're okay with it. However, there are people in the military um, who may not like unconscious bias training and they may think like, this is just something else that I have to sit through and I'm not really going to pay attention. Right. And I think that may happen with some of the trainings we have um, depending on who you talk to. Um, So I think it's important here to like continue to push for like people of color to be like in the military as well, because then like, then it can be, it's not just like a training. It's like also then when the O5s all have to get together for training, there's actually like, like a Filipino in the room, there's a black person in the room, there's an Asian in the room, there's like a woman in the room. And then these, when these issues are talked about, like there's someone there to like, at least like maybe not right there on the spot, but later on over coffee or something, have a conversation that carries that forward. 
I think leadership being involved in the training and not just as in like sitting in the background while all of us are getting unconscious bias training, but perhaps they're the ones who lead the training. So I think it makes a huge difference when you have a CEO or an XO who show you they're buying into this, who show you that they care, who show you that this is important, because I think obviously, you know, they probably have the biggest influence in a command. Um, so having them be the one that lead the training, I think would make a big difference because then it's really showing in buy-in for the rest of the team or the command that this is an important issue that's going to take time to tackle, but I myself am invested in this and I want to recognize my unconscious bias. And I think, you know, that will cause even something unconscious or subconscious in those individuals to say, yeah, like, let's get behind this, kind of what Kevin is saying, not just either doing it like a yearly or just sitting in there and doing it because we're told to do it, but I think it makes a huge difference when you see your leadership leading it or being actively involved in it and talking about their own conscious bias. We started doing all conscious bias training in our command, and um, our PDO, Lieutenant Commander Baldoni, and Ellen Baglin and I have uh, kind of been trying to form a curriculum of unconscious bias. And we had our first session at an all hands where we discussed just the basics of what is bias, what is unconscious bias, and how does this affect our Navy. Um, and the goal of that introductory session was to just cause people to have some sort of reflection within them within themselves uh, about what we were talking about. And the goal is to make um, different smaller group discussions, be it by rank, by um, gender, by whatever, or a mixture, just smaller groups where people can be vulnerable. Um, and the important part um, to combat uh, what uh, we were talking about of having this be just something that we have to do every year is to make it so that the trainers are vulnerable about their own biases, being things that have been done to them or biases that they themselves have um, about the way they see the world. And by being by being vulnerable as the leader in that training, you cause other people to open up and have really frank discussions about the way they see the world, the things that they've learned about themselves and about others, um, and make this a meaningful training rather than just, you know, another death by PowerPoint, another GMT that we have to sit through every year. Absolutely. And I wanted to mention, too, um, I thought it was really interesting when Admiral Hannock said that he had unconscious bias about unconscious bias training, um, <laughs> right? He acknowledged that he, um, you know, going into it, had some skepticism and um, mm -hmm. talking about that openly and saying that he took the training and it was really beneficial and eye-opening, I think sends a clear message that you may not think you have anything to learn about yourself, but you are going to be surprised by unconscious bias training. Kevin, what books or other material might you recommend for JAG community members who want to better understand your perspectives? <laughs> So I think oftentimes um, the root of a lot of this stuff is in history, right? A lot of these things that we're talking about here were like unconscious bias, right? We're talking about things that have been done for a long time. Um, so, and I think growing up in schools in the United States, a lot of times you don't get history that's much outside of um, the United States. Uh, so at least one book that comes to mind is The Open Veins of Latin America. Um, it focuses on like the exploitation of uh, the exploitation of South America as a whole. Um, 
and so that's like a great book to start with. Um, and then as far as like trying to broaden my own perspectives that like we're talking about here, um, there's a book called Stony the Road, which is by Henry Louis Gates Jr. Um, that I was told by after I read the book, I was like pumped because you learn about uh, all these things that we're talking about with George Floyd, about like stereotypes amongst black people and where that starts after Reconstruction. Um, and I like little, and I talked to a black friend. I was like, I'm super excited that I read this book. And he's like, that's a great first book to read, right? So like that, that in itself is like, you know, I think what I'm trying to get at is that overall just continue to read about history that's not necessarily history of people that look like you is important. So this is Carolina. I have one thing to add to any sort of books or media that people want to dive into to kind of get a better idea of the Latino community or the Hispanic American community. And a couple that I've really enjoyed, if if you already speak Spanish, NPR has one really great podcast called Radio Avivante, and it's a, it's a Spanish language podcast, so you can dive into it if you want to understand Hispanic culture even more. Um, but for those who are brand new, there is um, a great podcast called Tres Cuentas, and it is a bilingual storytelling podcast that is that's really just tells stories. So cuentos, cuentos, cuentos is, is just stories. And I enjoy uh, that one. And the other one was uh, Las Doctoras. And that's another um, great podcast uh, with two doctors who are professors in women and gender studies um, at different Cal State universities. So those have been really great to listen to for me. And I think that anyone uh, who wants to learn more um, would enjoy them as well. Um, Mally, what brought about the creation of the Navy Judge Advocate Hispanic Association? Sure. So, um, you know, back in 2018, um, I went to the National Latino uh, Latina Lawsuit Association Conference in New York City um, with Captain Robert Pastorello and Lieutenant Commander Maggie Cole. Uh, three of us went to the conference to um, just represent the Navy JAG Corps, meet law students, um, you know, just tell them what we're all about. And during one of the, uh, the many briefs that we attended, we kind of just sat back and we all at the kind of at the same time had this moment where, you know, we looked around the room, we saw so many young, uh, you know, aspiring attorneys, we looked at each other, and we just thought, you know, what would be great would be to create an organization within the JAG Corps where we could um, kind of create the same setting, you know, have a room together, you know, whether we're in person, you know, at the time, no COVID, right? So we thought, in-person, uh, you know, meetings, but now with COVID, we're kind of switching over to a virtual platform, which is totally fine. Um, but, you know, just kind of have an environment where we can share ideas, talk freely amongst each other, um, share experiences. Um, you know, one, one part of that conference, when the three of us were just talking about our upbringing, we realized how similar we all were um, in various aspects, just growing up in a Latino law, um, in a Latino household but also how different we were and just how incredible learning from each other and each other's experiences was. So we all just, you know, we enjoyed that conference so much and being with each other. And we wanted again to kind of create an organization for the Navy JAG Corps where 
we could allow um, or where we could have other JAGs kind of share that same experience, talk about uh, their upbringings, provide mentorship, guidance to each other. Um, you know, I look at both Captain Pastorello and Lieutenant Commander Cole as role models, kind of tying back into my role model question and just seeing what and learning about their journey and what they've gone through to get to where they are is really inspiring. So um, it, it really just kind of started off as three Jags going to a conference and having an idea to start an organization to uh, better, um, you know, better each other and, and our fellow uh, Latino, Latina Jags, but also, you know, non-Latino, uh, Latina Jags, just everyone to, uh, to kind of teach and, and learn from each other. And Kevin, what would you say are the uh, association's goals? So, you know, what are you aiming to do? And then how can new members join uh, or, or participate and contribute? So, yeah, Melly just touched on kind of um, what our goals were, which is essentially just to, like, um, you know, get more Latino Jacks into the Navy, right? Um, but I think the second part of that is then, like, once we're here, like, let's continue to get more in, right? And then also, like, public service. So, Captain Passarello, who's the chair of this, is super big on public service. Um, and so, uh, people to join, they can just email myself or Lieutenant Eduardo Reyes Chavez, who's also online. He hasn't done anything yet, but wonderful human being as well. Um, and so, contributing um we are trying to uh, move towards like getting people even especially with covid now um to like uh reach out remotely uh so like there's things like service to school or uh yeah service to schools where we help like veterans uh, lieutenant commander uh victor marquez has been a big proponent of that program in which like he's helped uh latinos uh who are veterans get into law school um, or even in your local community i know other members have done things like local cleanups um so we're always looking for people to, to help us either, like, you know, make sure the Jack or, like, we're promoting, like, public service or to help get other Latinos into the Jack Corps. Well, that's a perfect segue uh, for me to turn to Eduardo. Um, Eduardo, how does the association engage with Code 61? That's our um, military personnel division and handles a lot of the recruiting. Um, how does it work with outside organizations? Thank you so much for the question. Um, the way I see the relationship between um, NJAHA and Code 61 is a relationship of partnership, and so we we complement each other. So the best example is up, it's actually happening right now. Um, right now we have the Hispanic National Bar Association annual conference, and so uh, all of the individuals that are participating that are representing the Navy are actually members of our organization. So that's kind of like the best example where you can see both entities uh, collaborating with each other. Um, at the same time, uh, we're always talking to each other about different events that are happening in the community. So, for example, if I hear about something that is happening with the, you know, the National Latino Latino Lawsuit Association or NLASA or NALSA, uh, we can we can always talk to Code 16 and say, hey, we you know we heard about this event. What do you think about um, helping us with this? Or it can be vice versa. So it's it's always about engaging with the community, uh, sharing information, and at the same time, uh, sharing uh, personnel with each other. In terms of um, Organization that we work with, like I said, we work with uh, HNDA, uh, the Hispanic National Bar Association, uh, with NALSA, and we're also trying to work with uh, ROTC programs throughout the country and even outside of the, 
United States. And the way we do that is uh, through newspapers. So we have newspapers that we're trying to have periodically. Uh, we can emphasize individuals who are doing great things in the Navy. We can also emphasize part of our culture. So sharing stories about our families, um, our culture and different beliefs that we have, and also just panels. I mean, even including this podcast is an example of how we, um, you know, we reach out to other organizations within the Navy and even outside of the Navy. Um, and so that's kind of like what we do so far. Well, let me follow up on that a little bit and ask about um, the organization being primarily focused on judge advocates. Uh, can legal men or civilians get involved? Um, and are, what about other diversity groups within the JAG community? Uh, do you work in step with them as well? Yeah, that's a really, really, really good question. So the great thing about, um, like, like Melly said before, the great thing about being a very young organization is that we are open to many different ideas. So we're definitely, uh, even that right now, we, we're just composed of judge advocates that are active duty and even uh, reservists. We definitely encourage legal men and civilians to get involved. And like I said before, concerning, for example, um, newsletters, they can, you know, they can share information with us and say, hey, can we have a, an article about this or that or that. So we're always open to new ideas, new events. And, you know, because we're still expanding and growing as an organization, we're definitely uh, even considering expanding beyond uh, just active duty and uh, reservist uh, judge advocates. In terms of other diversity focus groups, uh, you know, right now, because we're, you know, we're still small, we're expanding, we're definitely um, envisioning working with other JAG um, community organizations that that can um, share information with us or ideas and can collaborate with us. So, Eduardo, one more question for you. Um, what have you learned from your colleagues in, in Jaha? That's a fantastic question. So, before I joined the Navy, I knew some of the members uh, that were part of Jaha, and so... Uh, you know, before you join, you join the Navy, you have this idea that everyone is kind of similar. They have a similar mentality. So what I learned from my colleagues, uh, especially the ones in this panel, is that we have, uh, you know, diversity of ideas, different experiences. But at the same time, we also have very similar experiences in the sense of, you know, Latino-Hispanic identity. A lot of the cultural aspects are similar. Uh, and that we care about some of the same issues, uh, you know, from immigration to diversity and inclusion um, in the Navy or outside of the Navy. And so I've been able to learn that we are very similar, but at the same time, we're very diverse in many different aspects, and we respect each other. Uh, we are open to new ideas. Uh, that, you know, we are open to sharing our stories, and that's why we signed up to be on this podcast. So this is uh, another example of, of you know, how we are still learning from each other and growing as individuals and as an organization. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, Yuvia, what would you say to Latinx law students considering a career in the JAG Corps? So the short answer I would say is uh, do it. Um, the long answer is the why. Um, I've always been a firm believer that change and justice can more often come when we change the organization from the inside than on the outside. I know there are a lot of people that may disagree with that. Um, in my particular uh, experience in deciding to come into the JAC, right? So I am prior enlisted. Um, and when I made the decision to go to law school and try to 
join into the JAG Corps. I had a lot of mentors in law school who were trying to dissuade me for that. Um, why? Because I am a very progressive person and in their beliefs, they thought that I was doing a disservice to my community by joining the JAG Corps and uh, going into government. Um, government work, specifically the military and the military industrial complex, um, instead of fighting with my community. Um, it came to a point where one of my mentors, who I still respect dearly, um, told me at one point that I was a traitor to my community, um, and that really hurt. Uh, but nevertheless, I, I chose to go with what I believed. And the reason why is because we can't begin to change the military. We can't begin to change the Jack Corps. We can't be- begin to change our system if the people who are running it don't look like us. Um, and it's important that we have representation. It's important that we as Latinx people, uh, as people of color, come into positions of leadership to be able to make those decisions and influence the way that our organizations are ran. Um, in preparing for this podcast, I was looking at some statistics, um, and the one that I could find was as of 2016, um, was the last one that we have from Department of Defense. Um, out of the officers in the Navy from 01 to 010, only 7.5% are of Hispanic ethnicity or Latino ethnicity um, as compared to the white population, which is 79.2%. Um, you know, not to mention other, other categories that are still very much underrepresented. Um, so it's important that we make the choice uh, to make the change. And I I think for a lot of people considering it in law school and trying to make that decision, it's a big life change um, to, to go from a civilian law practice or civilian life to the military lifestyle. Um, but I think it's a very rewarding one. Um, and we as JAG officers are not just making changes within the legal community, uh, but also representation to our enlisted population. There are so many more uh, Latino and people of color in the enlisted population than there are in the officers. And we are not just lawyers, right? We are leaders in our Navy. Um, and by having them see people who look like us, who have achieved higher ranking positions, we can be the mentors to make the change and encourage them to move up in the ranks to to create the change that they want to be. Um, And so I would encourage anybody who is thinking about it to reach out to their local recruiter, to reach out to the nearest naval base installation, to look up the JAG Corps um, and to talk to one of us. Um, and, you know, specifically request to talk to a, a Latino JAG to hear our experiences. Um, and I can tell you that it's not easy. And circling back to the question about racism in subtle or overt in the military, I've experienced a lot of it as, as an enlisted person more than anything. And I think it's just because the times are different um, and things are changing. And I, I can see that having been in the Navy since 2008, um, you know, when I was in A school, um, I had an experience where I was talking to another Latina. Um, We were having a conversation during a break about our private lives. And there was a particular civilian white male instructor who came and told us that we were not allowed to speak Spanish um, because other people couldn't understand us. Um, And I pushed back, knowing full well that I could have gotten in trouble. 
um, and asked why. And he said that the official language of the military was English and that I was not allowed to speak Spanish. Um, and I kept insisting that I wasn't talking, you know, anything official, that we were just having a conversation about our lives. We were in our break. Um, and I had the right to speak the language that I wanted to speak to my friend. Um, and he ordered me not to speak Spanish again. And I chose not to obey him. Um, and I have to tell you that I was super nervous uh, because I knew that that could go back to my chain of command um, and that I couldn't have gotten in trouble. But I chose to defy him because I didn't think it was right. And it wasn't until I came into the Jack Corps and really learned how to look up the instructions and realize that that's not the case, right? We don't have an official language um, in, in the United States, let alone in the military. You know, all of our business, our official business is con considered is done in English, but we can't prohibit people from speaking their languages. And that's just one example out of many. Um, and so by bringing, you know, circling back to the question, I, I know I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but we can make that change. We can make those things go away if we have enough of us who are in positions of leadership that can make the proper change. Thank you for sharing that story. That's pretty eye-opening. So, Frankie, speaking of change, um, what change do you hope to see within the JAG community during the next five years and then during the next 10 years? Um, so, one of the changes uh, I hope to see is obviously more inclusion and diversity in our community, um, especially when it comes to our leadership and people who are in positions to make, like, policy changes and really impact those things. But I think even at the level of, like, working groups and, you know, how do we get better, right, as an organization, it's going to be a constant. We're never going to get to perfection. We're probably going to have some other report where we need to reassess where we are as a group. So also a leader who identifies and intentionally is looking for diverse, different members, whether that is race or gender or experiences, um, whether it's, you know, prior enlisted or coming straight from a civilian I think the intentionality of looking for people who are different um, is one of the things that I really hope to see. Um, you know, many of the comments and suggestions that were made here from, like, you know, consistent inclusion of statistics, um, analysis of those statistics, analysis of those statistics, and then how we incorporate those changes in our military justice process, how we incorporate those changes when we're in the fleet. Um, so I think being very thoughtful and methodical about those things is a change I hope to see. Um, hopefully there will be no COVID and more, um, like, you know, cross-organization and cross-different diverse, diverse groups working together. Um, so, you know, if there's different groups, you know, it could be the Asian Pacific Islanders and, you know, our organization working together and doing something that can be seen or felt or, you know, impacts our organization as a whole. Because, again, when you listen to a panel of very diverse groups of people, it will help you with your own thoughts and experiences and unconscious bias, which I know we've talked about. Um, you know, I think when it comes to the unconscious bias training, I would hope that that is something more regular, but not in the sense of kind of like I mentioned, like a GMT that we go to all the time, but really having that conversation and intentionally exposing ourselves to different individuals. Um, you know, I think that's one of the, the ways 
that I really hope to see the Jaguar change five to ten years from now. Carolina, the Vanessa Guillen case has brought about um, a national conversation about Latinx members of the military. Uh, what are your perspectives on the issues raised by that tragic case, um, both um, as a member of the military, but then from your work outside the military, too? Yeah. Um, thank you, Patty, for, for this question. This one was um, incredibly heavy for me. I found that as I heard more and more and discovered more and more about the Vanessa Guillen case and um, her and her murder, that everything about her could have very well been me on the screen. I mean, brown hair, brown eyes, five two, young Latina, just starting her career in the military. Um, and that's probably why I got calls from my abuela and my mom, kind of like frantic, asking me questions about the case um, and concerned about me. Um, obviously not understanding the, the major differences in, in our in our location and that we're on different bases. Just they they saw what they saw on the Spanish news and Spanish media um, and immediately like equated that to me. And Overall, I noticed that the perspectives of the Latino community was shifting into this, like, almost boycott against young Latino females joining the Navy because of the perspective that the institutions that they were entering and which they wanted to serve just would not protect them or speak up for them. And like a harm of a service member that when they go into the military um, should only come from the hand of an adversary and not from a brother or sister in arm, um, and that the institution should do everything it can to protect them um, was one thing that just emboldened me and reminded me of why I joined the JAG Corps. And I think lends to the point that Yuvia was making, that she was saying, I have to make a difference from within. And it reminded me of why I was here. I was saddened about it and then recognized I have to use this as an opportunity to dive in and make change from the beginning in this organization. And that's why I reached out to my mentors to try to get connected with a Hispanic American Latino group in the JAG Corps because I'm like, I can't be the only one. I can't be the only one that knows this is not okay and who wants this to be different. And I'm so thankful for this group. I'm so thankful for this call because the voices and the passion that are just have just been mentioned in this past hour have just motivated me even more and made me more encouraged for the future to see that people really do want change to elevate Latino voices in the, in the military and the JAG Corps. Carolina, that is a wonderful way to close out our podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate everyone joining us and sharing their perspectives. Um, I think there is a lot for our listeners to enjoy and learn from in this discussion. So thank you so much.